Thanks, Nate and Carol. That was awesome. I love duets. From where I was sitting, you could only see Carol, so it just sounded like you had four hands. Really, that was <laughs> impressive. Well, here we are, Christmas Eve, finally. You've all made it. I hope you can take a breath this morning from all the craziness that is the Christmas season and just enjoy being in the house of the Lord with the Lord's people today. No matter what situation you're in, I pray that this morning you are blessed by your time in this sacred place among God's people in God's house. Today's the, like I said, the, the last day of the season of anticipation that is Advent. So today is really the greatest day of anticipation, Christmas Eve, because tomorrow will no longer be in Advent. The, the Christ child, I told you many families observe this practice where they don't put the baby in the manger yet until Christmas Day. So tomorrow morning, little baby Jesus will be placed in mangers in little nativity sets all over the world. We're going to wake up on the first day of Christmas. And this is a very different kind of Christmas Eve for me. Did you know the last time that the, the way the calendar fell that uh, Christmas Eve was on a Sunday was 2006? I didn't realize that. You'll love this. I was a ripe 25 years old in 2006. Fresh, fresh 25. So we get to have two special times of worship today. We get to worship now, and then I hope you'll join us again at 5 o'clock tonight for, like Rachel said, to, to see the children enact the Christmas story, which is a, a welcome change probably from Revelation that we've been in in December. It'll be nice to see baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all the animals. So be here tonight at 5 o'clock. Um, this is also a very different kind of Christmas Eve because I've never preached inside a barn before. It seems like... Uh, my, my mom often told me I acted like I belonged in a barn or like I was raised in a barn, but never preached inside a barn. So thank you to the carpenters who built this, Calvin and, and Robert and uh, Ron and, and Rob Caldwell who, who put this thing together. It's going to be a beautiful backdrop for the play tonight. And I also don't think I've ever heard a Christmas Eve sermon from the book of Revelation much less on the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but that's what's going to happen today, so get ready. Yeah, the four horsemen. Jana, you're excited always. I love it. That's great. Bring it on, she says. If this, all of these things offends your traditional Christmas sensibilities, I apologize. Uh, if you're looking for that sweet story of the the, the couple who travels to Bethlehem on a donkey and who finds room in the, the inn, then I encourage you, like I said, to come back tonight at five, because you'll get that tonight, not this morning, okay? I want us all to use our praying imaginations this morning, okay, to engage our minds and to picture what the Apostle John is shown and what he's commanded to write down here in the book of Revelation. We're going to think not only about the first advent, as we had sung in that, that hymn, that beautiful song, Light the Fire of Life, Jesus Christ has come to earth, and he will come again. I want us to think about the second advent of Christ this morning, Christ returning, the return of, of God in the flesh here on earth one last time to finish the work of redeeming all things back unto himself that he so powerfully began 2,000 years ago. 
I want us to, to think about this work that he's been doing ever since the fall, really, of bringing it all back to himself, of reclaiming, restoring, recreating, renewing, and redeeming all things back unto himself. The New Testament actually says more about the second advent than it does about the first. One scholar that I read even says that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers in some way to the second coming of Christ. It's a dominant theme in the New Testament, and we would do well to pay more attention to it. I believe that Revelation has a powerful message of hope and encouragement that's just as relevant for you and me today in 2017 as it was for the first century Christians who heard this letter the first time. When we read through Revelation with open hearts, and with praying imaginations that are engaged spiritually with what God is showing us, then we're greatly encouraged to follow the Lamb of God even more closely, with more passion, with more intensity, and with great deal more urgency. Now the passages that I've covered so far in Revelation really have been pretty tame, right? You're like, okay, Nathan, you haven't said anything about the great dragon coming out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns. You hadn't gotten any of that stuff. I know, I know. We've been pretty safe so far. The letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, those are good words of encouragement for the church. Then last week we talked about the vision of the throne room where the lion and the lamb become the same person as Jesus Christ who takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father who's seated on the throne and, and all the heavenly hosts worship Him with total and complete praise. But today, on Christmas Eve, <laughs> we're going to get a little wilder, okay? We're going to step out into chapter 6 and some of these other crazier images that, that John has revealed. It's going to take your imaginations today, okay? Remember last week in, in chapter 5, John is, is caught up in the Spirit, and the door of heaven is open to him, and he's having a great time seeing this heavenly vision of worship around the throne of God. He's like, this is awesome. This is the reality that God is on the throne. He's the center of the universe, and this is great. But then he begins to weep when the scroll is presented and no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. He weeps because that means he's not included. He's not privy to the plans of God that are revealed in that scroll. He's not going to be able to see what's in it, what God has planned, what God wills, what God desires. John's not going to be included in it until the Lion of Judah, who has conquered, is found worthy to open the scroll, to break the seven seals that are on the scroll and reveal it. And that's when the, the praise just goes to a fever pitch. The four living creatures just bow down and worship. The 24 elders lay their crowns at the throne of the Lamb and of the one who sits on the throne. So now chapter 6 is about the, <coughs> the seven seals that are broken in order, that are keeping the scroll closed. They open one after the other as the Lamb enacts God's plans, as He sets God's will into motion. And remember that the, the point of the whole book is to encourage believers in their discipleship, in their walk, in, in how they follow the Lamb. That's the whole message of Revelation, to help Christians follow Christ more faithfully. Remember, prophecy is not prediction, it's a promise. 
Prophecy is not intended to give you some kind of inside scoop on how things are going to unfold at the end. It's a promise that God's going to win, that you can hold on to hope because God is going to win in the end. You can trust that. Think about the first century Christians who who first received this message. They had been celebrating the fact that God had come at the first advent. God dwelt among them in the flesh. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and that he walked among us, that he gave them words to live by, and then he was led like a lamb to slaughter, and and on him was laid the iniquity of us all. And then he rose again on Easter morning, conquering the power of death and sin forever. But the Roman army was still in charge. They were everywhere. It seemed that they were winning the battle, not the Christians, surely. Anyone in the Roman Empire, which was basically the whole known world in the first century, that dared to confess publicly that Jesus Christ was Lord and not Caesar, was summarily executed or imprisoned at best, or thrown to fight gladiators or wild animals for sport in the arenas of the Roman Empire. Christ lived, suffered, died, and rose again but the world was getting worse and not better. You know, I I feel like the same thing applies to our world someday, don't you? I I don't know about you, but I can get discouraged pretty easily when I read the news or or watch the news. When, When government seems so corrupt and when the powerful benefit so much at the the sake of the powerless, I, I start to wonder. You know, when, when I or someone I know is mistreated or suffers a grave injustice, it, it, it makes me start to lose hope, maybe. When loved ones get sick for, for no good reason and, and start to suffer, it makes me sad, of course, and I grieve, and I often start to question things. Evil seems to have the upper hand so often with, with marital strife, with poverty, with, with the lost around the world that Rachel just prayed for. When, when mass shootings occur over and over again, it can lead to a deacon like Jamie Dunham echoing the words of Marvin Gaye. What's going on? What's going on, God? It's the theological question. A lot of theologians say it's the number one theological question there is. What in the world is going on? Well, St. John starts to answer that question here in chapter 6. The scroll in chapter 5 reminds us here that God is sovereign. You know what that means? He's totally and completely in charge. He's still the one on the throne who determines the circumference of the world and the universe and everything that happens. Not one molecule in the universe operates independent of God's will. We trust in that. That's the message of the scroll. He will carry out his plans through Christ for the cosmos on his schedule, not ours. This means that what we see in our world is not just random, but that God is still in charge. It's it's God, therefore, who determines the, the circumference of all things, that therefore history is not the result of random events that occur. Humanity's future is not driven or determined by fate or by the stars or by genetics or or science or anything else but the will of God. The first seals of the scroll are broken here in chapter 6 
as, as God's will unfolds. And the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which you may have seen a movie or heard something about, but I want us to imagine it today together. So let's stand if you're able to this morning out of respect for God's word. Don't stand if you can't. As I read the first part of our text for today, a few people warned me last week, by the way, of asking you to close your eyes and imagine things. It's never a good idea to ask people listening to a sermon to close their eyes. It's nice and warm in here, so I thought maybe if you're standing, maybe that would help you not fall asleep. So engage your praying imagination, okay? Hear the word of the Lord regarding the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by a wild beast of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, you can have a seat. Okay, that sounds bad, right? <laughs> and it is. It, it sounds evil, in fact, and it is evil, in fact. The first horse, the white horse, brings a mighty conqueror who's bent on taking lands that are not his own. Then the red horse comes and brings war and, and bloodshed and violence on the earth. And then the, the black horse, the third horse comes and he brings a, a terrible famine. And the famine will produce, as scarcity always does, horrible injustice, price gouging, and, and atrocities where it, it becomes an evil time. Rich people will, will have oil and wine, but they won't have bread and they will starve. And finally, the last horse, the pale horse, brings sickness and death. The horse is the color of a corpse. That's what the, the, the word pale means. It's the color of death. It, it brings an epidemic disease on the earth. I know what you're probably thinking right now. Hey, great Christmas sermon, Nathan. Really well done. <laughs> you may be thinking, when are you going to talk about hope? When are you going to talk about peace, joy, and love? When are you going to get to the encouragement that Revelation is meant to produce in us? Well, that's a very appropriate question for the Advent season. How long must we hear of evil? How long until God breaks into our evil circumstances 
and says, enough. I'm going to make all things new. That's Revelation 21, by the way. That's next week's sermon. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) My favorite Advent song is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a season of anticipation, of longing, of yearning to be free from evil. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. How many of you are lonely this Christmas? Don't raise your hands. Verse 4 says, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem unto your own and rescue them. From the depths of hell your people save and give them victory over the grave. Verse 6, O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. This song echoes the psalmist. Psalm 74, the, the psalmist cries out to God in a very honest and raw moment of desperation. Verse 9 uh, through 11, Psalm 74, it'll be on the screens. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. There's none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment. Get your hands out of your pockets, God, is what the psalmist says. Isn't that awesome? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. We join the psalmist today. We see evils around us, even in the midst of a happy time, truly the most wonderful time of year, I believe. I love Christmas. I love December. But we still see atrocities in our world, don't we? We still see pain and suffering. We cry out to God, how long will cancer, how long will disease, how long will broken bodies cause us such grief? How long will rulers and and those in power inflict injustice on the powerless? How long will they bring suffering to the poor? Chris Rice, the singer-songwriter, had a great song a long time ago called Naive where he asks God these kinds of questions. He says, how long until you defend your name and set the record right? And how far will you allow the human race to run and hide? And how much can you tolerate our weaknesses before you step into our sky blue and say that's quite enough? Am I naive to want a remedy for every bitter heart? Can I believe you hold an exclamation point for every question mark? And can I leave the timing of this universe in bigger hands? And may I be so bold to ask you, please hurry. How long? It's a question that's also asked by the martyrs as this fifth seal is open. The first four seals are the the four horsemen. Now let's look at, at verse nine here and look at the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Wow. Those who had been killed for their faith in Christ are not killed in vain or or by random circumstances. They they did not die in vain. Their lives are, are actually given as a sacrifice on the altar of heaven. What, what could really be greater than that for your life, honestly? To, to be consumed as an act of worship for God as a holy sacrifice on the altar of God. It says here they were killed for the word of God and for their witness to the world. And now they, they cry out in a, in a prayer meeting to the sovereign God, how long will these four horses of evil run wild on the earth? inflicting war and famine and disease everywhere they go. And the answer they get is until the number of of your fellow servants and your brothers and sisters should be complete. Doug Webster says, we are sobered by the fact that time is not measured in conversions, but in martyrdoms. Wow. Did you know that there were more Christians killed for their faith in 2016 than any other year prior. Did you know that 2017 is on track to surpass that mark? There are saints in the the world who suffered Taliban atrocities in Afghanistan and and the the crackdown against Coptic Christians in Egypt and and in Iraq. We we built a house, a habitat house for people who had fled Egypt. They They were Christians, they were Coptic Christians. Some are are martyrs from Nigeria who were slain by the ruthless Boko Haram in the jungles of Nigeria. Many of them are victims of North Korea's brutal regime. Under the altar, you know, the the, the bottom of the altar is where the blood of the sacrifices pools. That's where the souls of the martyrs cry out to God. That's where the souls are, are there from many new converts in Sri Lanka who were targeted by radical Buddhists. There are martyrs underneath the altar of heaven from from Saudi Arabia and from Iran and from all over North Africa. This this fifth seal calls all of us to remember the eighth beatitude that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember this one? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then finally, the sixth seal. is opened, and it's the first of of many visions of the end of heaven and earth. Did you know that heaven and earth will all pass away? We sing that song, right? Jesus, there's something about that name. Heaven and earth shall all pass away. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Again, that's next week's sermon. Don't miss it. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. All through Revelation, you see this picture of the end where where heaven and earth actually are destroyed. Verse 12, chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves 
in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Verse 6, I mean chapter 6 ends with this question. Who can stand on the great day of God's wrath? The world is completely undone on this day. The, the once reliable movements of the sun, the moon, the stars that were scientifically calculated are no longer relevant because they're gone. All of all, the whole world is, is no longer uh, in order. Who can stand before the judgment of God Almighty? Well, we get our answer in chapter 7. Look at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The angels stand. They're not intimidated by evil. They just say, hang on, let's, let's finish sealing God's people before all this evil comes. So is that it? Only angels can stand on the day of God's wrath? That's, that, that's not good news for us, is it? But there's Advent hope. There's Christmas hope here. Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wow. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hey, hallelujah. Amen. Isn't that amazing? These are Christians, the great multitude. This is the, the sorry, pathetic little minority that seemed to always be getting whooped by the Romans. 
These are the people who were irrelevant to the Roman Empire, Roman Empire and the political machine of the day, to the uh, economic machine. These are the ones that the vast majority of people on earth scoffed at and said, yeah, okay, loving everyone sacrificially sounds great, but in the real world, you can't do that. In the real world, things like money and wealth and status and weapons, those things matter. That's the real world. But John clearly observes another reality here. That is not the real world. John sees the real world, one that, as Eugene Peterson says, is less visible but more solid. One that's already in existence and into which no evil can penetrate. It's the Christian reality. It's the life of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So, so who can stand in this world of evil? The Christian can stand. Just as Christ was able to break the seven seals on the scroll of God's word, he's also able to place a seal on us as God's children for eternity against all evil and against the power of death and hell forever. The Apostle Paul uses both of these images, standing in God's presence and being sealed with the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. It'll be on the screens. Now it is God who makes us, both us and you, stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us by putting his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You see, what, what John is seeing here in Revelation 6 and 7 is, is not just a picture of heavenly bliss that we have to look forward to someday. It's a present reality for us in the here and now because of Advent, because our God came to earth and is coming again. We are now protected from the, the effects of sin and evil that separate us from God and from his love. Nothing can separate us now, for we are in Christ Jesus. Even as we experience suffering that's caused by evil, yes, you're not going to be delivered from it, but you will be delivered through it, right? So what evils have you been living in fear of today? Where does evil seem to be winning in your life this morning? Remember the hope of Christmas. In that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the hope is repeated in every refrain. I didn't read the refrain. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of mourning and loneliness and exile, in the shadows of the night, we're commanded each time to rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel, God with us, has come to us, O Israel, the people of God. God has come to live with us, and he is good. He will win in the end. He is in charge, and we will win with him if we remain faithful to him and follow the lamb. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing picture of encouragement that we receive of the throne 
and the lamb around the throne and, and the scroll being broken. And yes, God, there is evil that is unleashed on the earth, but you harness it, God, and you use it for your purposes. Nothing escapes your sovereign will, oh God. Help us to trust in you as we follow you more closely, to put our, our total hope in you that you will win in the end, that evil does not have the final word that you are still on your throne, you are still in charge, and you are still good. You have caused us to be able to stand against the flaming arrows of the evil one. We stand firm, putting on the whole armor that you've given us. God, we thank you for the resources we have, for the riches we have in Christ Jesus to stand against the evil of this world. It's the only way we can stand. It would flatten us if it weren't for Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, help us to follow the Lamb more closely as we live into Advent hope. The hope that you have come and changed everything and the fact that you are coming again. Help us to be Advent people who are constantly carrying in us the hope of arrival, the hope that you are coming to finish the work to say that's quite enough. And God, as we cry out now, how long? Help us to patiently endure the evil that we in, 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 in encounter every day. We know we're not spared from the effects of it, but we are spared from its ability to separate us from you, God. Nothing can do that now. Neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor powers, nor rulers, nor life or death, God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in your high and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came to rescue us, coming into our world in a stable, as a baby, and who is coming again. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you've never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, I invite you to come forward now and do that. There's no better time than Christmas to accept Jesus as Lord. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church. You're ready, you know you need a church family to plug into, and you're ready to, to make that decision. I'd love to talk with you about that now during this time. This, this song we're going to sing is it's called Agnus Dei. It's, it's the Lamb of God. It's the song that they sang in Revelation 19 around the throne of God and to the Lamb, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride of Christ is joined to Christ himself at the end of all things. This is what we anticipate. This is what we are, are headed towards. This is what we hold in our hearts as, as Advent hope. Let's stand and sing Agnes Day now. <laughs>